Take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. I don't know how you teach something after a song like that. I'm glad it says that Jesus preached and taught. One of the things for which I am accused of over this country is that Charles Shipman doesn't know anything but salvation. And I think I'm going to plead guilty. <laughs> I don't know about anything else. And I may not know a lot about salvation, but i tell you what I do know about salvation. I'm getting it, Bob. I just can't get it on. <laughs> Thank you. All this new equipment taking us a while. And is it on now, Brother Bob? Jim, somebody? Is it on? Our mic over to the other church, or the church, turns different from this one. So we're just having to be sure everything is on. Is it on now? Okay. Thank you. I really don't need that one. What I was saying is, I get accused of not knowing anything about salvation. So what I want to do in these morning sessions with you this week, I want to talk to you about salvation. Salvation out of the book of Acts. Now, Lucy, that could have been a better song. But see, the whole business is through the cross. None of the marriage on our own, none of the goodness on our own. We all know that. But you know, there's some things many times said about salvation or the ingredients of salvation which are untrue. I want to make several preliminary statements for a while, and you can help me just like you did last night in, in teaching, and, and I may preach for a little while on this, but there are several things I want to say. First of all, there's a difference in what the saints come to know about salvation and what the sinners have to know in order to be saved. Now, do you understand that? After you are saved, you learn what goes together to make salvation what it is. But what you know of salvation after you are saved is different from what sinners have to know in order to be saved. Now that's an important imperative for our understanding. There may be a difference in what saints say sinners have to know and what God says. right. There are times that we use cliches, and I'll say about phrases in a few minutes, that are religious but not scriptural. There are things that you said in your salvation experience, if you're saved, that if you incorporate that in every salvation experience, you will mislead the sinners. That's the reason it's very important to know what the Bible teaches salvation is. Whether or not it is a scriptural basis, and whether or not the ingredients are of God and what He commanded for the sinners. Second, sometimes we attempt to incorporate into the learning process of sinners the knowledge gained by saints after a salvation experience. And I was just referring to that. That we have a tendency, after we're saved and learn what went into it and what made it what it is to incorporate that into the knowledge of the sinner. 
You can't give the sinner more than his faith can handle. Now it's imperative, and you'll see that, to know certain things. But you be sure the certain things that you know are what God requires salvation to be. And not what you think it is or what I think it is. What God has to say that salvation is. Because see, we, we have a tendency to think that the more you know, the better off you are. As though maturity, God's going to make you an adult in order to be saved. But He's not going to make you an adult. He's going to make you a child. You've got to come as a little child, not as an adult. And there are times that we incorporate too much. And there are other times that we incorporate too little. And I'll say something about that in a few minutes. Where is the balance? Oh, it's easy to get in ditches on one side or another. It's easy to say, this is what God said when maybe God didn't say that. It sounds good, but it may not be true. So it's, imper it's important that we understand what goes together to make it what it is. Now some place upon sinners the responsibility of more than the scriptures reveal. What is it that the scriptures reveal... Like the book of Acts. What is there in the book of Acts in the salvation experiences that they had that's necessary for them to get saved? Now, I want to say something else. Just because a certain person said something one way doesn't mean that same phrase will work on someone else. We can get off track. We can get into easy believism or we can get off into legalism. By stipulating phrases that are not scriptural, but we have made them a part of our theology. Some theology needs to be blown by God for the sake of sinners who hear it. Because we put too much or we put too little. Now every salvation experience contains a mysterious element that is unexplainable. Now, after you get saved, you're going to say, I'm going to explain everything there is to know about salvation. You won't even be able to explain yours. You can expound it, but you can't explain it. I can tell you what happened, but there is something that happened the moment God saved me that is unexplainable. I can't, I can't explain it. It's mysterious. Not spooky. Not spooky mysterious. Oh, mysterious that it's divine and it's heavenly and it's godly. When the impartation of life comes in at that moment, it is such a divine act of God and it passes from death into life and you can't explain that. That's mysterious. But you wouldn't take a million worlds for that mysterious element that God worked in your heart. Now, theology and phraseology must be differentiated and recognized as such. Now, certain phrases sound good, but may not have any scriptural basis as a requirement for all people. Like the phrase, you've got to know you're lost in order to get saved. As though you've got to say those words. You know, I, I found this to be true. It's an amazing thing that the word lost is not in the book of Acts at all. Isn't that an amazing thing? But neither is the word for sinner. It's not in there either. 
And yet you had five salvation experiences and 3,000 saved at Pentecost and the word lost does not even appear. You say, what are you saying? Hey, I don't care whether it appears or not. It's good gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But to say everybody's got to say the word lost or everybody's got to say the word sinner, that can be a religious cliche and that can be something that God did not require. Person could say, everybody's got to know they're lost as though the word lost is a requirement for all sinners to come to a comprehension. Listen, friend, when God reveals your losses to you, you'll know that separation from God. Nobody will have to tap you on the shoulder. You'll recognize it. You may not say the word lost, but you will recognize your separation from God. But we have a tendency, you've got to say just these words. Like, for instance, the publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He didn't say lost. He said sinner. What's wrong with sinner? Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. Isn't it just as good for a person to come to the altar and say, I'm a sinner, save me, as it is to come and say, I'm lost, save me. But there's some people who say, if you don't say you're lost or don't say you're a sinner, then you don't have any salvation. Well, I got news for you. None of them in the book of Acts said they were sinners, and none of them said they were lost. But I guarantee you, if you could read... What you can't read, there was inside of them the manifestation of lostness. And there is a comprehension of being a sinner. But sometimes we say, he doesn't know enough to get saved. Now you may agree with this, you may not agree with you, but you you agree with me, but you've got a right to be wrong. Alright? I believe God can save you all in one service. I believe he can do it all at one time. Because I believe when the Holy Ghost of God moves in, and I will say more about that after a while, when the Spirit of the living God moves in and shows you what you are and shows you who Jesus is, you can get there to the altar right then and He'll birth you into the family of God and you'll be as much of a new creature in Christ Jesus as somebody who went through months or weeks or ever how long it took them. I don't care how long it takes you, as long as you get the real thing. But I mean, we're living in a day when the legalists are killing us. By saying, you've got to say these words. And if you don't say these words, you're not saved. And the liberals don't even care what you say. These believism crowd don't say anything. They say, hold up your hand if you want to go to heaven. They've got now, it's, the whole thing is easy believism, full scale. But what I'm trying to tell you, sometimes our phraseology, our phraseology, well, just like for instance, I mean, I, I remember Brother Ray went to preach in North Carolina and this backwoods woman got saved. I mean, she didn't have any education, didn't, have, didn't know anything. She came to service and got gloriously saved. And when the service was over, she came up and Brother Ray held the mic and uh, he said, Lord, save you. Lord, really save you? Do you know you're saved? Did you ask the Lord in your heart? Well, what did he say? She said, he said, okie dokie. <laughs> now, would it be something who went around telling everybody to say, okie dokie? That's a phrase. He said, well, that wouldn't work. You don't know whether it worked or not. It worked for her. What's wrong with an attitude of okie dokie? 
How about yes? Or forgive me or save me and the Lord does that. And the only point I'm making is that sometimes there's a difference in our phraseology. But if you use certain phrases that have no scriptural basis in relating it to someone else, you may confuse that sinner. That sinner needs to know the scriptures and what God had to say, not what you had to think about. Now I'm not saying to you, don't share it, don't tell it. I'm telling you when you tell it and tell them how to get saved, be sure you know the difference in scriptural theology and your personal phraseology. We got that? We, we understand that? Yeah, I'm good. Just nod your head every once in a while. I know we got that. That even scriptural specifics may not be the same in every salvation experience. Folks, I've emphasized this and I want to emphasize it again. That scriptural principles will always be the same, such as repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. But the circumstances in which these are brought about are varied. In other words, don't you ever compare salvation experiences or contrast salvation experiences according to circumstances but principles. You say, what does that mean? That means all sinners have to repent of their sins. But the means by which God brings that about are different. And you don't ever want to compare or contrast the circumstances that are incorporated in your salvation experience. But you want to be sure that when you compare them, you compare them according to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because these are necessities. Now what was said to sinners in order to be saved is different from what was written to saints about salvation. Now that was something that I said in the beginning when we dealt with this. But I phrased it just a little differently. That what is said to sinners in the scripture is different in the context that were written to saints about salvation. Now some put more in salvation as I said than what should be there. And there's some who take less out. They make it less than what it really is. But I want to mention a few things. I'm still in. I'm getting Acts too. All right. You still got your Bible open there? There's where we're going. I'm still on the introduction. Let me mention a few things that's in everybody's salvation experience, okay? There are certain things in everybody's salvation experience. I don't care who they are. Number one is reproval. All right, now. John, you don't have to turn over there. You don't have to turn it off. But John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. Teach us. When the Holy Spirit has come, He will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment. Now that word reprove, of which the Holy Spirit will produce, is translated reprove, rebuke, tell a fault. In other words, He will let you know that you are a sinner. He will let you know some way that you're lost. But as I said, he may not use those terms. But there will come across a reproval inside of you in which he will reveal to you, you. Now, when he, I want to tell you, when he reveals you to yourself, you won't like what you see. 
But without reproval, without reproval, there is no salvation. It's, he's going to reprove you. It's like turning the light on. He's going to turn the light on. But he's going to give you the knowledge. He's going to give you the truth. And we're going to speak about the difference in information in a few minutes. And inspiration and inhabitation. These are three things that we need to get straight. But we're going to try to, try to do that. Like I said, all this week we're going to deal with salvation. As best we know how. Because we're expecting the Holy Ghost to do this. Now I can't reprove you. I'd make you mad if I reproved you. And I got news for you. You might get mad if he does. <laughs> you know when the Holy Ghost moves. You're going one way or the other. Indifference is over. When the Holy Spirit operates. I mean you will either have regeneration or right. One or the other. It's going to happen in, in the hearts of people. But you cannot have salvation without reproof. You say, well now preacher, do I have to know all about this? No, I'm telling you what the Holy Ghost knows and what He does. You say, well do I have to study all of this and get all this straight? No, but I tell you what, if you're unsaved, you need to listen to whatever the Holy Ghost says and whatever He tells you, it will be scriptural and it will be right. But when He does, there's going to be a consciousness, an attitude inside of you that you're the blame. It means to tell a fault, put the blame on you. Because see, there's something inside of us that says, I am what I am because of what others have made me. I wouldn't be what I am if it hadn't been for my wife or my husband or, or my daddy or my mama. I just, I put the blame on somebody else. Adam did it. And Eve did it. And you want to do it. But when the Holy Ghost reproves you of sin and righteousness and puts judgment upon it, I guarantee you, you're putting blame on somebody else. It's over. Then it's me. It's me. It's me. I'm the one who's the sinner. I'm the one who's lost. I'm the one who's no good. I don't care what you can tell that sinner. You can tell him anything. He's wicked, vile, and every day he'll say, guilty, guilty, guilty. Dump it all on me. I know that I am. But you say, how much reproval does he need? Uh-huh. We're going to answer that when we get down here to God the sorrow in a few minutes. But there are just certain things, attitudes that are work, and attitudes are the confines in which your thinking takes place. And remember what I said, you don't have to know all there is to know. It's the Holy Ghost who knows all of that. And when the Holy Spirit of God manifests Himself and puts the blame on you, there is an attitude created inside of you. I am guilty. Or whatever it comes across. I am a sinner. Or I am lost. Whatever the words are, they come out of there. But you cannot get saved without Holy Ghost approval. But the scripture says the Holy Spirit will do that. Amen. He's going to do that. Our reprovals in everybody's. Now here we are, saints of God. We're looking it over. And some of you who are lost, we're expecting the Holy Ghost to do it in you. He said, how do you know He will? Because He did it in us. And amen, and he wants to do it in you. But Holy Ghost for approval, but second, godly sorrow is in every person's experience. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Now there's a difference in repentance and sorrow. Sorrow works the repentance. Repentance means a change of mind. I'm not, I'm not going to get into all of these. There's sermons on all of these. But godly sorrow, sorrow is the grief. Sorrah is the sorrow for sin. The godless sorrow that God works 
That is the emotion, by the way. That is the emotion that you feel. A person says, I felt convicted. Oh, I just felt like I was a sorry, low-down, good-for-nothing person. That's godly sorrow. But godly sorrow itself, left as an emotion, without working anything, produces nothing. But godly sorrow works in a person to produce repentance. Ooh, hallelujah. And repentance is in every sinner's experience. You say, well, does he have to figure all that out? No, but I tell you what, when he comes to Jesus, he knows he's lost. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he's separated from God. And something else he knows. He's sorry for his sins. You say, well, how much sorrow do you have to have? Enough to repent. It's not the degree of sorrow. It's the quality of sorrow that you have. You don't understand what I'm telling you? Hey, folks, sometimes we think he's not as sorry as he should be. Or she's not as sorry as she should be. And what we need to do is see how wicked and vile we are until we get sorry enough. Hey, when the Holy Ghost is on you, you don't have to see more wicked. You don't have to see more vile. You don't have to see how bad you are. Because the Holy Ghost shows you the Lord Jesus Christ and how righteous He is. And in the righteousness of the Lord, you see your corruption and your wickedness. And when you come to the altar, there's an attitude there of giving up everybody and everything for Jesus. And if it's genuine, godly sorrow, that mind changes enough. Godly sorrow. Is in every person with salvation spirit. Repentance is in there. But I'll tell you something else that's in there. Reception. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe upon his name, or what we call faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There comes a moment and a time when under Holy Ghost conviction, you've got to experience the reception of Jesus Christ. Now that reception of Jesus Christ does not mean I am receiving him. Hallelujah. I believe right there you have a choice. And I believe right there that the Holy Ghost is dealing with you. And I believe you can say yes or no. That's what I believe. But I want to tell you something, friend. If you're going to get saved, you're going to have to receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Something's going to have to be exercised of faith, either to believe or not to believe. But if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to come a a change inside of you called regeneration. Do you believe you can get saved and not know it? There are some people believe that, aren't they, preacher? There some people believe that. They believe you can get saved and not know it. But I want to tell you something, friend. When the Holy Ghost of God gets on a person to bring him to Jesus Christ, he's going to show him what he is. And I don't believe anybody's ever gotten saved unless, unless the Holy Ghost brought him to that consciousness. And when he does, when he does, and you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you know something that's going to happen? Remission. Now, we're not as familiar with that word as we should be. But according to Acts chapter 10 and verse 43, he said, everyone who believeth shall receive remission of sins. You say, well, what does that come across as? Forgiveness. It means to separate the sinner from his sin. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. Whew, when, a, when an old lost person, when an old sinner gets down at an altar somewhere, or out there in a house, or out there in a car, or wherever he is, 
when he trusts Jesus as his Savior, there's a forgiveness takes place in him. He doesn't know how to put it into words, but he's a changed, born again believer in Christ Jesus. And he knows he's been forgiven. He knows all that sin is gone, been nailed to the cross, and Jesus Christ has forgiven him. Oh, listen, friend. Hey, all of a sudden it gets loaded down. He may not know what to call all the words, but if there's the right attitude inside of him, God's going to quicken him into the family of God. And when God saves him, he's a new creature in Christ Jesus, and he'll never be the same no matter where he goes or what he does. That's right. right. Yeah. right. That's right. He may not know what words to put it in, but he'll say, I've been forgiven. Hmm. Not what I used to be. Not carrying the load I used to have. But I want to tell you the most blessed thing of all to me, if you can put one above another, is the last thing that's involved in every person's salvation experience. And that's rest. Rest. So what does that mean, preacher? Hebrews 4 says, They that have believed have entered into rest. And he went and spoke of the Sabbath day rest of God. It took God six days to create all this universe, right? What did he do on the seventh day? He rested. But God didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was through. That meant he worked something that you can't add anything to and you can't take anything from. It's complete. It's his work, and he finished it, and he rested. Well, Hebrew said, when we believe, we entered into rest. It's over. You can't add anything to it, and you can't take anything away from it. When the sinner comes and trusts the Lord, Something happens right there that says, finished, through. Uh You can't take anything away from it, and you can't add anything to it. It's a finished work. You say, well, praise you. I got confused after I got saved. Well, if you did, it's because somebody tried to put something in it that's not supposed to be in it. Or they tried to take something out of it. That you didn't think was supposed to be in it. But after a while you'll settle down and say hallelujah. I don't care what anybody says. It's a finished work of God in me. Mm-hmm. Now see if it's really God. You can't talk them out of it. Because you didn't talk them into it. It's a finished work. There's rest. There's contentment. Hallelujah. You've entered into rest. It's over with. Now that's in everybody's salvation experience. But all those are attitudes. And all those are the work of God in that individual. 
But when that trust comes and that belief comes, I want to tell you there comes a regeneration, there comes a remission of sins, but there comes a rest in that individual that is as real as God's rest on that seventh day. Amen? Amen. Now let me acquaint you with three words and then I'll get to Acts 2. Now I've got to leave time for that next speaker because that, I'm always cutting that next speaker off when I'm in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Let me give you three words. If you don't get anything else this morning, get the word information, inspiration, and inhabitation. Information means exactly what it sounds. To instruct, to tell to, to acquaint, to communicate knowledge to, or to make known by word or writing. And since it's in the spiritual realm, it is the spiritual knowledge imparted by the Scriptures and the Holy Ghost. I believe this. There are some people who believe the Scriptures and the Holy Spirit are the same. But if I understand the Bible, the Holy Spirit is a person. And these are inspired writings. And you can have the scripture in your head without the Savior in your heart. This is the reason why we need inspiration along with information. You can't do without information. And the information means the knowledge that God imparts through His scriptures by the Spirit of the living God. But what about this word inspiration? You know, you can study all kinds of commentaries. You can study everything else. But the best definition I ever read of inspiration was in the dictionary. But not in the modern day dictionary. I have in our library at home, really in my office, Webster's First Dictionary. Isn't it good, brother Eddie? Now, Webster's first dictionary is nothing like the new Webster's dictionary. It is full of scripture. He uses more illustrations about scripture. <clears throat> but here's what he said. So I wrote it down. Inspiration. The influence of ideas into the mind by the Holy Spirit. The conveying into the minds of men ideas, notices, or munitions by extraordinary or supernatural influence or communication of the divine will to the understanding by suggestions or impressions on the mind which leave no room to doubt the reality of their supernatural origin. Now you can't improve on that. That's the reason the Bible says all Scripture is inspired of God. That means God breathed. God made Adam. He made him a body. Then he put, first he made like a skeleton, put the flesh on him. And then he breathed into him the breath of life. 
I want you to know we need more than just the imparting of knowledge. We need information. We need an intellectual understanding that is not Gnosticism. Because Gnosticism made salvation intellectual. It's what you have learned and know. And it's all in the mind. But it's more than Gnosticism. Salvation is a personal experience with the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. When He saves that that person. And it's not just information. It's inspiration. It's when the Holy Ghost breathes upon that individual. And brings that person to the place of inhabitation. Do I love the word inhabitation? Because it means just what it sounds. The act of inhabiting. If salvation was just intellectual, what you learn and know. And all it was was the breathing in and the inspiring of that. That would be enough. But it's not. It's not only changing you. It's not only quickening you at that moment. Someone comes to live in you at that instant. Oh, hallelujah. (laughs) At that moment, whether you're conscious of it or not conscious of it, when you trust Christ as your personal Savior, the Holy Ghost comes to live in you, and you become His body, you become His temple, and it's His house. It belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not yours any longer. But there are some people think, well, I believe I'm saved preacher, but I don't know where it happened. I don't know anything about it. I got news for you. That can't happen. You can't have an inhabitor come inside of you and inhabit you without you knowing it. You may not know all about it, but you sure know somebody lives in me that's different than I've ever known. Whew. Hallelujah. I like that word. You say, well, how in the world does that all happen? How does that work? I don't have any idea. I am the inhabited, not the inhabitor. The inhabitor is the Holy Ghost. The inhabited is me. I mean, He lives inside of me. I'm inhabited with Him. It's His house. Hmm? You say, well, when did He come in? When it was arranged for Him. Don't you know you're not going to move into a run-down, old, sorry, good-for-nothing house? Have you, have you ever seen a condemned house? How many of us have gone by and seen, seen a condemned house? Some of you never have. But some of you have. Do you know how houses get condemned? Not just because it's run down. The law, the law, listen to me, the law has to come out and examine that house. And according to the law, it doesn't meet the standards of the law. So the law says, unfit to live in. Unfit to live in. Got to have law. It's the law who condemns it. And when the law goes in, they examine it, they go through it, and they declare that it's unfit for habitation. So they put out a sign out there, condemned. And that means nobody about it. And they can't buy it. 
But you know what? There is what I call a condemnation realty that only buys condemned houses. Man, I mean, he may go up and down the streets, but he's not looking at the good houses. He's not looking at the painted houses. He's not looking at the fit houses. He's looking for those that are run down and condemned by the law. Law's already been there, and the law said unfit for habitation. But along comes this heaven's condemnation realty and says, that's the one I want right there. I mean, that one's condemned. It's run down. It's good for nothing. It's fit for nothing. I'll buy that one right there. Well, do you think that new person who's going to live in that house is going to move in like it is? No, sir. He's going to tear it down. All the way down to the foundation. And chances are real good it's rotten too. So he's going to lay a new foundation. And when he lays that foundation, he's going to start building on it. And when he builds that structure, I mean it, the new habitat is going to say, I'm going to move in. It's my house now. And they had to take that condemned off of the post. Had to take it off the mailbox. Because that house is no longer condemned because it's not the same house. It's in the same place, but it's not the same house. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't tell you when the Holy Ghost really deals with you. The law is going to condemn you and show you you're lost, hell bound, good for nothing. Nobody wants you. You couldn't go to heaven the way that you are and you're unfit to live in. There's nothing good for the Holy Ghost who is righteous to live inside of you. There's not one good thing in you at all. But all along comes the Lord Jesus and says, I'll buy that one right there. And when He buys that one right there, He tears her down and no one on the foundation can any man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And when He puts that foundation down, He builds that structure and the Holy Ghost comes to live inside of you. A new sign is put out there. Him no more. Someone comes along and says, Boy, there used to be. There used to be. Come on now, there used to be. There used to be. <laughs> there is no more used to be. Because he has taken it all away. Because Paul said that he was a master builder. And a master builder never leaves a flaw in the foundation. A master builder never leaves a flaw in the house. And let me say something to you. It's like watching Brother Larry. Some of you who helped build this tabernacle. What you see is its beauty. But if a storm came through, it's what's underneath all of this beauty that you'd be thankful unto God's heaven that there's some tuba sixes 
Are there some unseen things in this that holds it together in the time of storm? But when God saves you, it's good to be saved and it's good to see the beauty of it. But when the storms come along, it sure is good to know there's something underneath that you can't see that's in there. God put it in there and it's held together in the time of storm. It's held together in the time of difficulty. I mean, it'll stand the ups and it'll stand the downs. It'll stand whatever comes along because God put it in there. And the master builder, he makes no mistakes and he puts it in there. You may not know it until the time comes, but hallelujah, you'll make it through the storm. You'll make it through the difficulty because it's built in. Oh, thank God for God's condemnation realty. That He's just looking for condemned houses. So would you quit trying to fix yourself up presentable for the realtor? Oh, but oh my my person wants to sell the house and he never turns it over to the law as long as he thinks he can fix it up. As long as he thinks he can make that old house acceptable, he's never going to turn it over to the law. Well, I can see the law pass by the street. There's someone with the house is not quite condemned. And he doesn't want it to be condemned. So he does everything he to fix it. As long as you're trying to fix it. As long as you're trying to fix it up. As long as you're trying to make yourself more presentable to God. As long as you're making yourself look better. The law just passes right on by the street. But one day, when you realize you can't add any new boards to it and make it presentable. One of these days, when you look inside and the stairwell is always falling. The walls have holes in them. The mice are eating away. The roof is leaking. And you finally say, no realtor's going to want this. Nobody else is going to want this. At that time, the law dries up. Law says, what condition do you have? Hopeless. Helpless. Mr. Law, would you help me borrow some money to fix it up? Well, I've tried everybody else and nobody else can help me. I'll tell you the truth, Mr. Law. I can't even help myself. 
law says, I'll just tear it down. But Mr. Law, will you build it back? No. Unfit for the community. Unfit for society. Not even fit to stand anymore in this place. And you say, yeah, that's right. That's right, it's unfit. Unworthy. Good for nothing. Just tear it down, send me to hell. Just send me home. I'm not fit to go to heaven. I'm not fit for mankind. I'm not fit for anybody or anything. Just tear me home. I don't have any more hope. I don't have any more dreams. Everything I've ever had is gone and it's useless and it's over. At that time, a vehicle drives up. Mr. Law looks out. And you say to Mr. Law, who is that? Oh, at that heaven condemnation realty. That's Jesus driving up out there. Yeah. Well, you see, if a realtor did drive up to that house, he goes and said, let me buy it. Let me buy it. He'd say, okay. Me too. Go ahead. Nothing I can do. I see that person pay the price. Whatever was required, he paid it all. Paid in Because you see, nobody else would want it anyway. And then they'd come in head all down, take them a bulldozer, and grade it off, and they'd lay a foundation, build a new house, and you could move in. But I promise you one thing, when people drive by, they'd know something had done changed, and the new habitation in that house, because it was changed inside and outside. What I'm telling you is one day the Holy Ghost began to deal with you and show you you already condemned. Because he that believeth not is condemned already. He said, that's a terrible place to be in. That's the place where God's bringing you to see. You're already condemned. You can't get any worse than what you are. Quit trying to fix it up and say, I can't help myself. If it's going to be done, you're going to have to do it. You paid the price for it. It's yours. And when it is, instantly, he tears it down, rebuilds it, the foundation's there, the habitation of the Holy Ghost, and he moves in and there's rest. Somebody looks and says, Ooh, what happened up there at that place? That's not the same person. I thought nobody wanted that place. Oh, the way you feel before you're saved is nobody would have you anyway. I mean, you're just sorry, low down, good for nothing. I mean, you don't know how to put it into words. And I don't know how much God showed you, but I know one thing. You've got to come to the place to where you stand before the law. Judged and say, guilty God, condemned. Because when you get there, he's going to purchase you. He's already purchased. 
already died on the cross. But at that instant, there's a transaction made. When that transaction is made, you can't add anything to it and you can't take anything away from it. You've got a new inhabitor who comes to live inside of you. Now, just remember this, folks. God in heaven is the only one who can take a condemned house and build a new house in its place. And also remember this, he doesn't rework the old house. He takes nothing of the old house to put in the new one. So don't try to save anything of the old life to bring over into the new. All things new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things are become new. Well, I didn't lie. I still got Acts 2 up there. <laughs> That was the introduction. That's what I wanted to do, preacher. I wanted to lay the foundation of the things that we're going to look at every morning in salvation. Come on, John. Look, John.